Let's pray. Father, we have given you praise and offerings, and now we are in such need to receive from you that your ancient and timeless word might be made contemporary for us. We trust that your spirit can do this thing. and He can give us ears to hear and a heart to obey as we have sown. So Lord, we are eager to receive and, and pray that even in our receiving, you would be pleased. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This week, and, and, uh, I ran across a website, a fascinating one that I had never seen before. Perhaps some of you have seen it before. It's called theburninghouse.com. And it's predicated on the idea that if your house caught fire, what would you take with you? It says, uh, if your house was burning, what would you take with you? It's a conflict between what's practical, valuable, and sentimental. What you would take reflects your interests, background, and priorities. What's fascinating about the site is the way they display people's choices. They do it not only by list, but they do it by photograph. So people lay out the things that they're going to gather and do some real, kind of real creative photography. This guy would take his trumpet, an old camera, some shoes, sunglasses, and um, his MacBook, most notably. Uh, this person, a teddy bear, a wedding ring, some glasses, a hard drive, and their iPhone. And this person, similar things, shoes, um, camera, weird little orange person, not sure what that's about. Almost every one of these that I looked at, I looked at a boatload of these things online. It's fascinating. Um, everybody took either, a, almost everybody took either a Blackberry or a computer or a hard drive or an iPhone. Um, because if I, could, if I could put it in an expression, our life is in there. Okay? Our, our family photos probably live in there. Our contacts live in there. If we want to get hold of anybody, it's in there. But... Perhaps supremely, our calendar is in there. And if you want to mess with somebody, take away their calendar. Jeff Doyle is the current reigning king of, of computer crashes in the office. And the thing that drives Jeff most insane when his computer crashes is he doesn't know what he's supposed to do. He doesn't know who he's supposed to meet with. It's not just Jeff. Watch what happens. These are actual quotes from people whose computers have crashed, they've lost their calendar. This is Lewis. Today, all of a sudden, I lost all entries on the calendar on my iPhone. It was working well in the morning, and then poof, all entries gone. Have not yet checked my calendar at home yet, but why would this happen, and how can I rectify it? Thanks, and desperate. Here's another one. This is Nikki. I don't know what I did, but my calendar on my iPhone is gone. This is a serious disaster. Please, can anyone tell me how to get it back? And just so you don't think it's just Mac users, this guy says, I use my calendar every day. Today, all my data is gone. Is Windows Live that unreliable? What can I do to retrieve my information? Any help will be appreciated. I really need my data back. If you want to mess with somebody, 
Just mess with their calendar. Because our calendar contains our life at some level. But it also reflects our priorities. What's on our calendar gets done. What's not on our calendar doesn't. Now, admittedly, the first half of that's a little optimistic, the idea that what's on our calendar gets done. But at least we have a shot at it. If it's not on our calendar, it doesn't have a snowball's chance of getting done. Okay? It's just not going to happen. My wife has, has realized this, and now when she talks to me about kids' events, her question is, is it on your calendar? Because if it's not, it just doesn't happen. It doesn't really exist in my world anywhere. Moses got the power of calendaring. He got it. And so that's why in chapter 14... And in chapter 15, and now again in chapter 16, he is embedding in the life of the people events that are intended to shape their values. I mean, he did it in 14 and 15 with the tithe to the poor every third year and the seventh year release of debt. He inculcated by means of the calendar the virtue of caring for the poor. Today, he's going to invoke the power of calendar around the virtue of gathering as the people of God. And to do that, he calendars three great feasts that are supposed to be on people's calendar every single year. Every year, these are supposed to be on there. So open up to Deuteronomy 15. <clears throat> I will try to get through the feasts as quickly as possible. And I'll show you, hopefully, what they point to and what they are intended to embody in the people's lives. First one is in chapter 16, verse 1. <clears throat> it is the feast of Passover. Observe the month of Abib. Keep the Passover to the Lord your God, Moses says. For in the month of Abib, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night, and you shall offer the Passover sacrifice to the Lord your God from the flock or the herd at the place that the Lord will choose to make his name dwell there. You shall eat no unleavened bread with it seven days. You shall eat it with unleavened bread, the bread of affliction. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste. That all the days of your life you remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. No leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory for seven days. Nor shall any of the flesh that you sacrifice on the evening of the first day remain all night until morning. You may not offer the Passover sacrifice within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, but... At the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell in it. There you shall offer the Passover sacrifice in the evening at sunset at the time when you came out of Egypt. And you shall cook it and eat it at the place that your Lord your God will choose. And in the morning you shall turn and go to your tents for six days. You shall eat unleavened bread. And on the seventh day there shall be a solemn assembly to the Lord your God. You shall do no work on it. So the Passover feast is combined here with the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and they're really treated as one, I'm going together. And the Passover was a celebration of remembrance of the way God miraculously delivered them from Egypt. You probably remember the story, those plagues that came to make Pharaoh let them go from slavery. And the tenth was the most costly and that was the plague of the death of the firstborn. And every firstborn in the land of Egypt was to die as a result of that plague, except for those amongst God's people who slaughtered a sacrificial lamb 
and took his blood, wiped it on the doorpost. And in those households, the Spirit of the Lord, the wrath of God, would pass over that household and their firstborn would be spared. You can read about it in detail in Exodus 12. This feast commemorates that in all of its symbolism. The timing was at night, just like it happened at night then. They were to slaughter a lamb just as they had done on that time. And, and they were to not eat any um, leavened bread. It was to be unleavened bread and no leftovers because they didn't have time for it. It had been an escape in haste before Pharaoh would pursue them. So these symbols reminded them of their desperate need and the great, merciful, powerful rescue of God out of Egypt. Now, of all the three feasts in chapter 16, this one has the clearest pointer forward to the New Testament. It points to Christ as our Passover lamb who died for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Christ is our Passover lamb who has given his life for ours to spare us from the just wrath of God. He is the lamb that was slain so that God's judgment would pass over us. So Passover is the first feast on the calendar that they must celebrate. Every year, this was calendared. It would happen, uh, this year it was in April, uh, the feast of Passover. Second feast um, is the Feast of Weeks. It says, starting in verse 9, you shall count seven weeks. Begin to count the seven weeks from the time the sickle is first put to the standing grain. And then you shall keep the Feast of Weeks to the Lord your God with the tribute of a freewill offering from your hand, which we sh you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. You shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you, your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, the Levite who's within your towns, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are among you, at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. Okay. This feast is supposed to happen seven weeks after they begin the harvest. Leviticus ties it to this Passover Sabbath where the first sheaf of grain was presented. Seven weeks later, 50 days, they would have this celebration. That 50-day um, expression is also known as Pentecost. Um, the, another name for the Feast of Weeks is the Feast of Pentecost. It relates to the time when people begin to harvest the produce of the land. It's also called the Day of First Fruits, and it is an expression of joyful thanksgiving to God for his provision that has just begun. Now this year, the Feast of Weeks, in our day, Pentecost, happened last Sunday. Last Sunday was Pentecost Sunday. Um, this feast, back in the day, served really to benefit those who were in need and were dependent. You notice, Children, sojourners, fatherless, widows, servants, they all benefited from this feast. So this feast is embedding again that value of care for the poor and care for the needy. Um, but its main emphasis 
was on rejoicing in God's faithfulness that had just begun with the harvest. That's why it was on their calendar, to help them remember and trust in God's provision for them. Now, this points towards the New Testament in an interesting way. If you remember the book of Acts in the second chapter on Pentecost, the celebration of this feast is when the Holy Spirit came, made this miraculous appearance on the disciples with flames of fire, and they spoke in languages they did not know and declared Christ to people from the nations that had gathered for that feast. That all happened on Pentecost. Um, And the connecting point, one of the best ones that I've been able to establish anyway, um, is that just as the Festival of Weeks in the Old Testament was a celebration of first fruits, what had just begun. So Pentecost was a celebration of what had just begun with the harvest of nations coming to Christ. Remember, this is a pilgrim feast, Pentecost, so people have to come back to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. So they were coming from all nations. And Peter preached this great sermon, and on that day in Acts 2, those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Just the first fruits of what was going to happen throughout history to our day and beyond. The gospel being taken to the nations. Um, that's the second feast, a celebration of what God had just begun in harvest. The third feast after Passover and the Feast of Weeks is one called the Feast of Booths. Starting in verse 13, you shall keep the Feast of Booths seven days. And when you have gathered in the produce from your threshing floor and your wine press, you shall rejoice in your feast. You and your son and your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns. There's that emphasis again. For seven days you shall keep the feast to the Lord your God at the place that the Lord will choose, because the Lord your God will bless you in all the produce and in all the work of your hands, so that you will be altogether joyful. This Feast of Booths, sometimes it's called the Feast of Tabernacles, um, was to be celebrated at the completion of the harvest. So you had the Feast of Weeks at the beginning in anticipation of the harvest. This is a celebratory feast for all that God brought in for the harvest itself. Um, It would incur this year in October. It commemorates the fact they would build these booths that commemorated the fact that they had been sojourners, homeless, wandering. Um, That's why it's called the Feast of Booths. But it's also a time of great rejoicing, and it honored God with thanks for the blessing of his provision. Now, when you go to look for this feast in the New Testament, the clearest reference to it is in John chapter 7, and at the conclusion of this feast, the Feast of Booths, Jesus stands up, and this is what Jesus says, on the last day of the Feast of Booths, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, 
a lot of ceremony has grown up around this Feast of Booths over the centuries, between when Moses prescribed it and now when it's celebrated in Jesus' day. And some of that celebration um, was really pretty elaborate, and I read it to the first service, and I almost lost them. So let me see if I can summarize it for you. Okay? The priests would come, they would have a great golden cup, a flagon full of uh, water from the pool of Siloam, and they would do this elaborate procession when they would come up and they would be singing these great hallelujah chants from, from the Old Testament, and uh, it's this tremendously elaborate uh, celebration. Every man would raise up a stick of willow uh, with his, actually with his left hand, he would raise that up and wave it, and in his right hand he would hold up a piece of citrus, an expression of God's provision. And so there's this elaborate celebration going on, centering around this offering of water. And they would come then and pour that water out uh, symbolically. And it refers, according to D.A. Carson, to the messianic age in which a stream from which the sacred rock would flow over the whole earth. The water-pouring ceremony is a foretaste for them of the time when the Messiah will come and reign. Okay? So it's this picture of the expectation of the blessing of Messiah on all the earth. And so Jesus stands up at the last day of that feast, and what's he say? If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Essentially, Carson says, Jesus' pronouncement is clear. He is the fulfillment of all that the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths anticipated. If Isaiah could invite the thirsty to drink from the waters, Jesus announces that he is the one who can provide the waters. Jesus presents himself as the fulfillment of what this Old Testament feast was pointing towards. He is that Messiah who brings living water to us. Now, these feasts are embedded in the calendars of God's people as pointers to things future, but also to embody virtues that are necessary for God-pleasing worship to be offered. Okay? And if you listen closely, when we read through the, uh, these verses, you heard recurring ideas, repeated themes. I want to look at those themes that God was trying to embody in their worship by this teaching. Also things that I believe are supposed to mark our gatherings when we gather to worship. So the first of themes, and I'll just underscore three of them this morning, there's a number more in there that you can find as you read and study and discuss in your small group this week, but I'll underscore just three of them for you. The first thing that's repeated if you notice carefully, is that God is particular about the place they have these celebrations. Okay? Over and over and over again, it says, as it does in verse 11, you shall rejoice before the Lord your God at the place that the Lord your God will choose. Okay? It says it in verse 2, in verse 6, in verse 7, in verse 15, and again at the end of verse 16, at the place, you have these feasts, at the place that the Lord your God will choose. Um, it's about five or six times in these 18 verses, God repeats this instruction 
only in this place, not in any of your towns, in the place that I will choose. And this place is a big deal. Um, why is it such a big deal? And I want to take you back a couple of weeks, several weeks, back to Deuteronomy chapter 12. In chapter 12, you remember um, it said that you shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess, dispossess serve their idols. Smash them, bash them, tear them down, burn them. He goes on and says, you shall not worship your God in that way, that is, in those places. You shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you offer your worship. So this place issue is both an exclusive demand of God to be worshipped alone, not in some syncretistic fashion where they worshipped the Canaanite deities and Yahweh. Now, they were going to be obliterated, but it's also a protection for his people from sliding into that idolatrous worship. So this is both for God's glory and for our good. Yahweh was to be worshipped without any syncretism. I put it this way when we studied it before. It's not Yahweh plus, it's Yahweh period. Okay. So that is what's being advanced by this issue of place. No syncretism. And syncretism, our day, really could be described a different way. Its most common form is what we might call do-it-yourselfers. These are people who design their own God that they're going to worship. I like a little from this religion and a little from that religion, and I don't like that, so I'm not going to do that. I want this one. And they design their own God. It's like cooking without a recipe. You got a little bit of this, a pinch of that. What determines what goes into the, recipe, into the dish? I do. It's what I like. It's what I want. I'm not a slave to any recipe, which can work sometimes with cooking. It's horrible with theology and worship. see, if we say, this is my God that I designed by my reason and my likes and my needs and my desire, then what that means is I can worship him as I please. I can worship him anywhere I want, with anyone that I want, any time that I want. And you can already sense this is radically opposed to the value that Moses is driving home. He's saying, calendar this. This is when you worship. Mark this. This is where you worship. And it will be these feasts. This is how you worship. If we have our own kind of do-it-yourself for God, then we don't think that way. We don't think that way about this gathering. We think this gathering is really optional. It's not really that important. I will come when I feel like coming, and when I don't feel like coming, I won't come. I can worship at home in my PJs if I want to. I am a do-it-yourselfer, and my God does not care. But again, the message that's coming to us is that God cares and that he dictates how it is that we're supposed to worship. 
time and place and people. Uh, in the New Testament, we, we don't follow their calendar, but it doesn't mean we don't have one. Um, if you look at Hebrews chapter 10, the writer of Hebrews says, Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. A command of the New Testament that we must meet together. He says, it's the habit of some to neglect this, but encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. It is required of us that we meet together. And the consistent New Testament pattern is they met weekly on this day, on the, on the first day of the week. So Paul could write when he's giving the church instructions about the taking of offerings, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up. How, how could he write that? Because they gathered. It's a consistent pattern of the New Testament. They gathered weekly to worship God. This is God's pattern for our worship. This is our calendar. A weekly gathering of his people to worship and to remember. Now Hebrews warned back in New Testament times, and they warned us, that there are some who would neglect this habit of meeting together. Could that be said of you? Do you neglect the gathering together of God's people? Is it a high priority for you, or does the slightest little inconvenience or opportunity knock you out of the saddle? Uh, there's a guy named Tim Sanders. He's the former chief solutions officer at Yahoo, and he's the author of a book, fascinating title, Love is the Killer App. He says, uh, take your life, this is, he's think, helping us think about priorities. He says, uh, take your life and all the things that you think are important and put them in one of three categories. And the three categories he has are rubber, metal, and glass. He says, you can take everything in your life, you can put it in one of those three categories. He says, the things that are rubber, if you drop them, they bounce back up. It's not a problem. And he says, that's like for him... He's a big sports fan, but he says, if I miss a Seahawks game, or even an entire season, he says, my life bounces along just fine. Okay? It just bounces right back. It's not a big deal. That's rubber. He says, metal, if you drop it, it makes a lot of noise, but you're still okay. It's not, no permanent damage is done. He says, this is like... Um, if you, are, if you miss a meeting at work or if you um, forget to balance your checkbook, the bank will let you know there's a bunch of noise that's generated, but you'll recover and you'll be fine. The third category, he says, are things made out of glass. When you drop one of these, he says, it will shatter into pieces and never be the same. Even though you can piece it back together, it will still be missing some pieces. It certainly won't look the same. And I doubt you could actually fill it up with water because the consequences of it being broken will forever affect how it's used. Now, I'm wondering, which category do you put the gathering of the people of God in? Is it just rubber? Is it like missing a sporting event? Or is it is it like metal, where it makes a lot of noise? You'll hear about it if you miss, but it doesn't really affect anything long term. Or is it glass, 
And if you drop the priority of meeting with the people of God, it really fundamentally matters. Moses, with his emphasis on these things, I think would urge us to put it in the calendar of, in the category of glass. It's not, it's not like if you miss, it's perfect attendance isn't the goal, okay? Um, but maintaining a high priority on the gathering of God's people is. Um, it's not that you can never miss a Sunday, but it ought to be weird that you do. If you look at your kids on Saturday night and you said, you know, we're all kind of tired, let's just sleep in tomorrow, they ought to look at you like you're not well. Okay? They, ought, they would run and say, Mom, is Dad okay? He, he just said that we're not going to go worship tomorrow. What? That ought to be peculiar, unusual, extraordinary. The gathering of the people of God ought to be a priority. It ought to be quite rare that you're not in our assembly. Is this gathering, or for that matter, our monthly gathering for prayer? Uh, we have that tonight. The church gathered for prayer, though not calendared in the New Testament, is a high priority amongst the people of God. They met regularly to pray. Could those be described as a high priority for you? Are you in submission to God's pattern? Or are you making up your own and saying, this really doesn't matter much to me. I don't think God really cares much about whether we do these things. So tonight at 6 o'clock, we'll gather for the poor, or gather to pray for the poor, rather. Those who are in financial need in our, in our lives, in our community, in our fellowship, and around the world. Is that on your calendar? Does that matter to you? Is that a priority? See, this is for God's glory and our good. He is protecting us by the prioritization of the gathering of the people of God from sliding into idolatrous do-it-yourselferness. That's the first theme. A second theme that you'll see that runs through this passage a lot, you may have noticed it mentioned it in, in the expression, um, the word Egypt. Remember Egypt. It's in here all throughout the passage. Um, it's in verse 4 and it's down in verse 12. If you count them up five times in 18 verses, we're they are exhorted to remember their deliverance from Egypt, to remember their slavery in Egypt. Um, Moses is building them a calendar of remembrance. That reference to remembering Egypt happens almost 50 times in the book of Deuteronomy. So they would never forget the great rescue from Egypt. One of the great central acts of their history is the rescue of God from slavery. And so they, they remember that with the Passover. That's how they make sure that it's on their calendar so that they will remember and never forget. And for us, we've already seen that that's a pointer to what Christ did for us on the cross 
and our celebration of the Lord's Supper. Remember, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. Christ is our Passover lamb. He has given his life for ours to spare us from the just wrath of God. So when we gather for the Lord's Supper, we do that every month here on a monthly rhythm in our morning services, except prior to Easter, we do it during the season of Lent every week. And then we have other special insertions like the Maundy Thursday service where we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Um, when we gather, we feast on our Passover lamb and we remember God's great rescue for us from sin. Romans 6 says, you have been set free from sin. And that is by Christ's sacrificial work on the cross. So central to the worship of God is this idea of remembering God's great rescue for us. This is central to what we do in the Lord's Supper. So, are the Lord's Supper services at Northwake on your calendar? Do they matter to you? Are they a high priority for you? They are um, always on the back of your worship guide the week before we celebrate the Lord's Supper. It'll typically be there. I'll warn you, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper next week. Um, it'll, be, it'll be posted there in the future. Um, it's always in that weekly email called The One that we send out that has all the stuff that's happened at the church, all the needs of the church in one email. Um, if you don't get that, you need to contact the office so that you're aware of these things. But when that happens, is that a priority for you? Do you make it a point to make sure you're here when we remember together the death of Christ for our sins and the breaking of bread and the, and the sharing of the cup? Do you make it a point to be here? Do you make it a point to be here ready? 1 Corinthians 11 encourages us, requires of us that we examine ourselves before we take the Lord's Supper. Preferably before you even enter this building, you have prepared your heart by examining and confessing sin and being reconciled with someone if you're estranged, whether that's a child or a spouse or someone in your neighborhood or at work or whomever, that you would reconcile with a brother or a sister before you come. Do you make it a point to use those services to truly remember the rescue that God has done for you? See, those services need to be on your calendar, be priorities for you. Are they? To live and honor God in the future, we must remember well the past and the great act of deliverance Christ has worked for us on the cross. One last theme that I'll, I'll try to get through um, quickly for us that runs throughout these feasts, especially the latter two, it's mentioned specifically, and that is the virtue of rejoicing. It is um, mentioned with respect to the Feast of Booths in verse 14 and with respect to the Feast of Weeks in verse 11, 
It says, you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son, and everybody. Rejoice. Slaves rejoice. Widows rejoice. The fatherless rejoice for what God has done. Now again, these are agricultural feasts that mark the beginning and the end of the harvest as we expect God's blessing, as we celebrate it um, with joy, what God has done for us. And of course, for us, those are pointers as well to Christ. If somebody came to Northway, let's say the religion reporter from the News and Observer, and they were writing an article on our worship, and they sat in your row, and they watched you worship, would they say that you worship with joy? Or would they say that you worship sleepily, bored, catatonic, might be a word that could be used, distracted, disengaged? See, um, this is not a suggestion for the people of God in their worship. It is, it is a command. You see it there in 16. You shall rejoice. Everybody rejoices. Everyone has received God's blessing. Rejoice in it. In the New Testament, same way, Philippians is full of it uh, in that regard. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord, Paul says. Down in chapter 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Joy is an expression of thankfulness to the God who has blessed us and who has rescued us from slavery. Would it be fair to say that when you worship God, you worship Him with joy? You know, Daniel Cresswell does everything short of set himself on fire in order to be catalytic in the hands of God, to draw us to joyful worship. It's not a show. It's genuine worship by a joyful worshiper, but he's also a provocateur. He is trying to wake the dead. Okay. So what would it look like for you to enter this room and obey the Lord and worship Him with joy. One of the biblical expressions to that is to lift your hands and exalt the Lord with your body. Um, I know some of you who are really shy, that's really threatening. Um, I, I understand that. But there are physical manifestations that represent joyful worship of God. One of them is your countenance. That will be your face. It is okay, it may even be commanded, to smile in worship. Okay. You've been rescued. Rejoice in that. Um, put a smile on your face, take your hands out your pockets, and worship the one who rescued you. So, Next Sunday, what does it mean for you? We, we're not all going to almost spontaneously combust like Daniel does. Okay. 
But if we are rejoicing in what God has done for us, I think it needs to find its way out of us somehow. It'll look different for you and me than it may for some others. What will that look like? How will you obey this command of God that's woven throughout this text? Well, our passage that we're going to look at ends with this summary. Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose. Okay. This emphasis on males is not exclusive, obviously, children and women shared in the feasts. But I think it's a minimum requirement. The men better be there. The men better lead in worship. At the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Booths, the three feasts. They shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given you. Another great theme of worship through this. Um, Three feasts, three times a year, God tells his people, when you are in the land, put this on your calendar. So it will mark you, and it will shape you, and it will point you towards the fulfillment of these things in the Messiah. Paul says in Colossians 2 that writing about some of these kinds of feasts, that they're a shadow of the things that are to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Christ is why we gather. But these, these feasts, they point to him. And they also show us what worship needs to look like to honor our great king. Um, they have to be for us a calendared priority, the gatherings of the church. And we must remember well what he has done for us. We must never forget. And for us, that's in the way we do the Lord's Supper, first and foremost. And we do it all with joy. That we'll rejoice before the Lord like King David. We'll raise our voices, maybe even our hands. We'll let our joy affect our countenance, maybe even our posture. We can scarce contain it. There's a lot more in these feasts about God-pleasing worship. I hope you'll find it this week as you meditate on it. But I wanted to challenge you with these three things. Do they mark you? Let's pray. God, help us to hear that which you are saying to us as a people and to us as your followers, rescued in an unforgettable way. And yet, we forget, and our joy is robbed. So, Lord, we repent of joyless, forgetful, sporadic worship, and we covenant to honor you with all our hearts, our Redeemer, our Savior, our friend. Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen.